Hey everyone, and welcome back to There Was an Idea. In this episode, I'm Thor, son of Odin. You guys are in for a real treat today because this conversation between me and two of my closest friends who I've known for years and years and years, Lakshmi and Carolyn, it was a blast to do. And I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation about Thor Ragnarok. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please make sure you follow us at anidea underscore podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Enjoy the episode. I am TK of New York, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. I'm a high school teacher by day, and I'm also a huge fan of pop culture. And this is There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that finds itself at the place where those two things meet. Join me and some special guests as we explore the MCU through concepts in the humanities. Spoiler alert, one of those concepts is intertextuality, and as such, each episode of this podcast will likely contain spoilers for multiple films in the MCU. Thinkers, inquirers, and lovers of entertainment, assemble. So with me today, I have two of my closest friends, Carolyn Keough and Lakshmi Subramanian. Hi, I'm Carolyn. Uh, I'm a museum educator, and I'm really excited to dive into Thor. I'm uh, Lakshmi Subramanian. Um, I'm a marketing analyst. Looking forward to having this conversation. All right. So typically, I ask my guests to start off by telling us a little bit about your relationship to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, man. Um, so I love X-Men and Spider-Man, man, which I know <laughs> you're not covering either of those franchises in the context of our conversation today. Well, what do you, you so, mean? The Tobey Maguire Spider-Man? Is that the Spider-Man? I mean, Toby. Okay. Yeah. Full Toby. I you am... like new Spider-Man too, though. I do. I do. But I would say in terms of the contemporary Marvel franchise, my relationship is such that Lakshmi will be watching a movie and I will <laughs> um, catch a glimpse and then get very invested in the ones that speak to me. But yeah. other than that, I'm not an expert by any means. I have a complicated relationship. I thought I liked Marvel more. But then, Tara, when you started this podcast and I looked up the <laughs> movies that fell within the scope, <laughs> I was surprised by how few i actually liked wow interesting okay um so i, I don't want to say i dislike it though. i mean i'm a my relationship to movies in general is like i'll watch anything mm -hmm. especially any superhero movie um but as carolyn mentioned you know so i, I got her into x-men x-men is hands down my the love of my life i grew up on x-men and so i don't i don't have room in my heart for a whole lot of other stuff i see i see um, so well to be fair i do also love x-men and while that series is not officially part of the one that i've set out to do here i um could could see myself um doing a spinoff at some point because the x-men <laughs> are awesome so what's interesting okay so you said that but then when i asked you guys about which one <laughs> You might like to guest on. You both emphatically said Thor Ragnarok. So we're, we're going to spend like the next hour talking about this movie. But um, just big picture. Why? Lakshmi, you said you um, 
Well, no, sorry, Carolyn, you said that you get invested in the ones that speak to you. I just want to know, why does this speak to you? So it, it really um, worked against all of my expectations. I think when I think of a cinematic blockbuster in the Marvel vein, I do not think of something that is playing with identity politics the way that I think this one does. I'm not expecting mm-hmm. something that has the same level of humor, both slapstick and like highbrow, sarcastic sort of um, hijinks, I guess I would say. So I think when within like first 20 minutes of watching this, when Lakshmi was watching it, I like sat next to her and <laughs> I was like, wait, this is Thor? And then watching this movie, I just was really taken by, you know, how charismatic he is, how all of the figures really... Um, you know, challenge some of your expectations about typical superheroes. And then also I'll leave Lakshmi to answer for her, but I have a feeling I know what her answer is. (laughs) I can't wait to hear it. So the reason I was interested in seeing Ragnarok was one reason alone, uh, Kate Blanchett. There it is. So, I mean, it it was when it came out in theaters, like I, I barely noticed. I remember like hearing a coworker talk about it. Um, but it, it didn't really resonate with me. Thor out of all the superheroes was always the one I was the least interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hammer sounded lame. Uh, <laughs> I, at that point in time, I didn't really care for that particular Hemsworth in any particular way. And so it was like, I didn't realize he was so funny, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the only thing that drew me in was a uh, Cape Blanchett. So, so you, you, you came in for the Cape Blanchett and then you stayed for the rest of it. I was really pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. so, so when you asked us what are which one, so as I mentioned, like I did, I of the twenty three that you were considering for mm-hmm. this the podcast, there weren't a whole lot that I, I I loved, but outside of this one, you know, I, I obviously I, I liked Infinity War, I liked Endgame, but mm-hmm. this was my gateway into those two. Like, I yes, think the only sure. reason I even watched Infinity War was to understand what happened after this. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Ragnarok is I, it's probably the only one within this context that I have any attachment to, and it, it was unexpected. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think I would like it as much as I did. Yeah, I agree with you guys that this movie has a lot to it that you wouldn't necessarily expect, and on top of that, it also has the humor and the music is fantastic, and the visuals I think are also really really captivating. So, just briefly, some context for this movie within the larger MCU. As we said, Ragnarok is the third Thor movie. It takes place in Phase 3, during the lead-up to Infinity War and Endgame. And it's a very pivotal installment for Thor's character. It's also worth noting that this film was directed by Taika Watiti, who is from New Zealand and is of Maori heritage, Um, Because that perspective is definitely felt in the movie's themes related to colonialism. And um, let's get into it. I see kind of two big threads for us to follow. Um, The first being Thor's identity journey and that concept of identity in general, because that also relates to a couple of the other characters in the film. And then I also see the thread of uh, the concepts of history and legacy and the ways in which sometimes history tends to sanitize the past 
but this idea that darkness and the violence and the corruption is going to find a way to come out. So I'll kind of turn it to you guys. And those two things are connected too, right? Thor's identity journey and those larger themes. So I'll leave it to you guys. Where do you want to start? If you leave it to me, I'll say Hulk, which I know is a... Is a and, if you, and if you leave it to me, I'm going to say Hilla, so... <laughs> I'm referring let, my notes. Let me, let me just start by sharing an issue. I, so I watched Ragnarok again um, to prepare for this. Uh, it's embarrassing how little I remembered, too, I guess, from the first time. Um, and so when I watched it the first time, right, I, I had no expectations for what the film was going to be about. I knew nothing about Thor, what had happened in Thor 2 to lead up to this. Mm-hmm. The movie, first off, just as a general note, it, it's it's frenetic, right? It, it begins, for a person who knew, knows nothing coming in, it starts in this, like, weird fire battle. You know, you don't even meet Hela until... I want to say like 40 minutes in or mm-hmm. something. It felt like a very long time. <laughs> You're just waiting for Kate. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough, Kate. Um, no, I, the thing that really got me with her character is that, so yeah, she's technically speaking the villain of the film, but her, it just, she just, she doesn't feel like a typical villain. And maybe I'm biased because it's Kate, but <laughs> I, it just, it felt like they were trying to really kind of position Thor, I did, I, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I guess I, I, I was upset by the fact that I just, I really didn't like Thor as much watching it this time around, and I felt like I felt like he just has this very narrow view of of like Asgard and Asgardian history, and like you know, even after he learns that Odin, mm-hmm. um, Odin set up Ragnarok, you know, Odin yeah. knew this was going to come, and he was just like well you know my father left us and he just he fights the battle he just he's like very just like oh well this is what i have to do it's like it's to him there's just like one view of of good there's i I just and watching it this time around it just felt like hella really there's there doesn't feel like there's as much evil there as i felt like the film was trying to put on her she feels like almost like a narrative conscience conscience Mm. to me you know like i think there's this one line which i I took notes which are very interesting out of context but (laughs) one line that i wrote down when they're examining um the murals in asgard and you know i love how they miraculously change and the underpainting becomes revealed which i think is really interesting from a visual and like art historical standpoint but that's a different conversation but she says uh, Odin proud to have it ashamed at how he got it mm-hmm. and I just really loved that you know because she's not wrong she's coming from this villainous standpoint she obviously wants to murder the whole gang right like she's not well-intentioned but her statement is you know she's calling out something about this narrative and bringing to light the truth which you can't characterize as villainous right right she is shedding a light on the villainy of the established system and mm-hmm. of Odin, really, in some mm-hmm. ways. I don't know how you guys feel, but I can't stand it. And Odin. she was also used. I mean, there's something about yes. the dynamics of labor there, too, where she was used as a function of war until she was no longer until she no longer fit neatly into the narrative Mm -hmm. and so i think also as women watching this story there is something about that 
you know, I don't know, there's something about her pursuit of vengeance that seems somehow, um, I don't want to say feminist, but it does seem like it's like you, 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 I was part of the narrative when I fit nicely into your um, perception of self. And now that I no longer fit in, I'm cast aside and I'm, you know, yeah. Ultimately, she, she is punished by the hero <laughs> of the story and, um, mm-hmm. and, and rightfully, but there's, there's something interesting in that all she is really trying to do is take what Odin started and follow it to a more extreme end, right? Mm-hmm. He was he colonized these nine realms, and she's saying, "Why stop at the nine realms? Why don't mm-hmm. we?" She's an expansionist, and she learned to be an expansionist from Odin, and as you said, was corrupted and used in that way. Mm-hmm. And then, as soon as she gets. Uh, too ambitious. I think maybe that's the part where I yes. see that thread of of a little bit of a feminist reading is that idea of like, okay, once she gets too ambitious and she wants to take what the person in charge, the guy in charge is doing to the next step, then he says goodbye. Yes. So I think that's interesting. He, he, also, he doesn't just say goodbye. He erases memory of her, yes. which is crazy. You know, there, it's one thing to one thing to say like, oh, you know, things got out of control, you know, she needed to whatever, be imprisoned or whatever that's called, wherever she went. The choice to basically remove her from all of Asgardian history is bizarre. He's fully, he's a revisionist. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I want to pick up on that thread because um, this, this thread of storytelling, who writes the stories, how do we remember history? which is so present in this movie, and really from that very first scene. So if you guys remember, the movie opens with Thor literally recounting his own story, and, um, you know, to a skeleton in the cave, and it's humorous, (laughs) and it also obviously works as a narrative technique to catch the viewers up on, okay, this is what Thor has been up to in the previous movies, Um, But it also, I think, really sets a tone that that's the beginning of the movie. Um, In this movie, we're going to be dealing with stories, histories, how they're constructed and reconstructed. And Thor, he says, it's a long story, but basically I'm a bit of a hero. So we also get this sense of his identity or at least how he sees himself or likes to present himself right from the very beginning. And then um, that scene... That first scene leads into the part that you mentioned, Lakshmi, where the, the big fire guy, um, <laughs> and he faces off with with Surtur, and it adds to those themes, too, because this is the first time that he says, because that's what heroes do, which is mm-hmm. this line that comes up a couple of times. He also says that he makes grave mistakes all the time, but that everything seems to work out. And I thought this was interesting because it also suggests that he has... Um, this degree of privilege, sort of, that not, you know, he has suffered consequences in the previous movies. His mom died. Um, he lost his relationship with Natalie Portman's character. Um, but he hasn't, despite those negative consequences, he hasn't really had to suffer too many challenges to his worldview or his way of seeing himself. So I think that, um, And then he will in this movie. And as you were saying, Lakshmi, too, um, throughout a lot of the movie, he is still stuck in that 
kind of old way of viewing things. And the countless number of times that he says, I am Thor, son of Odin, defining himself by his father's legacy. Um, it's really not until the end that you see some change in him. I mean, yeah, he's a narcissist. Uh, Carolyn wrote down a note, um, actually about his whole, his title, right, Carolyn? Well, I think, well, two things, like, I think setting up the beginning and his relationship with his own identity is so fascinating when you think about where he ends up, right? He ends up on Sakaar, which is this, for lack of a better term, like garbage land. (laughs) (laughs) And for somebody who, um, you know, someone who prides himself on being the son of Odin, this this god of thunder, which he takes very seriously in terms of his own naming, which is something I wrote down a lot about naming. Great. But back to the garbage uh, planet, you know, I think when he lands on that conveyor belt and they're pushing him through and he's going to go meet Jeff Goldblum, Grandmaster, and they're reading off this kind of euphemistic description of what this planet is. And they say, like, this is the place where things that are lost are found. The unloved Mm -hmm. will now be loved. And I feel like that, the way that they set up this setting is so interesting in the context of what you were just talking about with Thor, right? I didn't even think about how somebody who prides himself so much on being so special, so great, so heroic, then he ends up and he's basically like tagged like an animal in the zoo. Yeah. And they're like, you garbage. But now there's Jeff Goldblum in a nice gold suit. Um, so it really, I think feel like that moment, I don't know. I, I pose a question to you guys, which is like, do you feel like him being on this planet and having to fight someone else's battle for sport? Does that challenge his word worldview? Well, I mean, he, he, the whole time he treats it as beneath him, right? Mm. He maintains his hero mentality. And even after he makes, um, those friends, uh, Korg and Meek. There you go. Korg and Meek. Even after he makes those friends, (laughs) his, his, again, his pursuit is very narrow minded. He's still, he works to be the hero at all points of the story. There's never a moment where he seems to just pause and, you know, embrace a role any other than God of Thunder, you know, even even when his his power is challenged, right? He struggles to like summon his strength through multiple points in the movie. Mm-hmm. And, and even when he's close to being mortal or regular alien or whatever, you know, that state is called, like he never ever sheds that God slash hero mentality. Right. And well, he he corrects that. They keep calling him Lord of Thunder, mm-hmm. and and he you can tell it just gets to him. He's the God of Thunder, and so the yeah. specifics in naming I think are so fascinating. Yeah, and I, I want you to say a little bit more about that. I had one other thought about Sakar um, related to what you were saying, Lakshmi. Is that the whole time that he you said it seems beneath him, and I think the whole time that he's on Sakar, he's very preoccupied with getting back to Asgard. And I think that's important too, right? His Mm. tie to his sense of identity being tied to being the hero of Asgard. Um, So I think that's interesting too. And I also think in an interesting way that Sakaar kind of mirrors Asgard in that it is the golden sham type of city. It is corrupt. They are enslaving people, um, but they're doing it with this shiny veneer. Mm -hmm. And that's taken to such an extreme with Jeff Goldblum's character. Mm-hmm. So, Carolyn, why don't you say a little bit about this naming? Yeah, so it's it actually something that I flagged 
goes right to that Jeff Goldblum character who's just, I mean, can we just take a moment for <laughs> Jeff Goldblum? Because he is, I love the Grandmaster. Um, but everything is euphemism, right? Everything is this euphemistic language. Similar to the revisionist history that Odin um, creates and perpetuates in Sakaar, I feel like the violence is in perpetuity. Right. But the tools that are being used to kind of keep it at bay are this euphemistic language. And so there's this one moment that I really loved where I think it's towards the end and he's talking to like his assistant lady. Yes. So he's speaking to his assistant lady. I don't know her name. It's and Topaz. Topaz. Awesome. <laughs> um, and he's saying something, you know, she sa- refers to the slaves and he says, no, 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 we don't use that word. And then she's like, okay, the prisoners with jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just... You know, I I don't know. I felt like that in tandem with Thor's um, control of language. It's like these two figures who are antithetical to one another, but are embodying this sort of control over how things are being named, what things are being called. And that's how you sustain power, right? I mean, language is power. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, there's a couple other places that I wanted to point out sort of along that vein that come up so... Uh, so even the character Valkyrie, there's a little bit of that naming as well, right? She identifies as Scrapper 142 and continues to say that she's not a Valkyrie. And then her character becomes known just by Valkyrie, which is a role and a position hmm. more than it is actually a name. Um, but she's very resistant of being identified by that role early on. And I think we'll come back and talk more about her later on. Maybe, maybe it's not fully accurate, but like in a lot of ways. So when, when I'm, I'm just going to bring back to Kate for a minute. Um, when, she, when, when Hela, uh, after she like fights off that army on Asgard and she goes and, um, uses the eternal flame to awaken her old army or whatever. Mm-hmm. And those are old Asgardians. And yeah. in a lot, it's, it's, so the whole time it feels like there's actually like a civil war happening right mm-hmm. and because it is a, a group of zombified asgardians against live asgardians and it, i thought it was kind of strange that at no point is it really treated as such directly you know it's i mean great i know we're dealing with zombies and so maybe it's not like a perfect a perfect uh civil war but it feels like a civil war it's, yeah. it's a battle for the throne right it's it's a sibling it, rivalry. I would call it. I would call it like a temporal war more than a civil war because temporal. it's like the time, mm. like time, right? Because mm. it's this old way of doing things that was like you know washed over and ended up in this gilded package mm. um, versus this new way of doing things. But at the end of the day, both are unsustainable, which I think is interesting. So I mean, is it? I don't know. The question is like, is it? two people two groups of be beings aliens i don't know from the same um, <laughs> from the same planet the same origin competing or is it the same people but from two different times two different worldviews two different ways of operating mm. that's really really hello america 2020 sure <laughs> yeah and i again i think that relates very well to this idea of of colonialism or American expansionism or any other empire. Um, If you took people with a more modern sensibility 
and then had them, I don't know, fighting the ghosts of the people who mm-hmm. actually fought for the British Empire. Like, But both are unsustainable because the right. modern sensibility comes from the wounds and the violences of the past, right? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So, um, yeah, on this topic of, of Hela... And uh, there's a couple of great lines of hers that I wanted to come back to and hear your thoughts. Um, So some of her language is, to me, very evocative of the idea of manifest destiny and nationalism. And she says, um, our destiny is to rule over all others that she wants when she first comes back to Asgard and the people don't know her. She says, I thought you'd be happy to seize me, to see me rise into the ranks of my great conquest. Um, and then she even says, you know, when she starts killing the people who are resisting her, she says, good soldiers dying for nothing, all because they couldn't see the future. And it's almost this, this sense of her rhetoric is just very interesting to me. I want to just make a small addendum she is most definitely a villain. I take back <laughs> everything I said before in characterizing her as not villainous. She most definitely is ripped from the pages of, you know, villains of our own history in modern times. So I totally take it back. Sure. No, but I think your point, too, about how she works in the narrative is also an important one that she... Yeah, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying, I'm sitting... Not to be a one track, not to have a one track mind, but I'm thinking about the language that she's using and I'm trying to remember if anyone else in the film speaks that way. I mean, I think going back to the question about why this film struck me and I was kind of pulled in and interested when I don't have that much of a standing relationship with the Marvel universe or with Thor was because everyone talks in a more, you know, it's like more colloquial, more humoristic. Um, and she's really, to my mind, maybe other than Odin, the only character that's that's using this language that is not in that way, right? Mm-hmm. She's she's writing as if she's like Machiavellian, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's no one else is talking like that. Everyone else is having these more modern contemporary interactions with one another. And she's like, what a waste of good soldiers, you know, I, right? I don't know. Do you guys think anyone else is speaking like that? And then if that's if not, where is she getting that from? Like, where is that situated? I mean, on that particular line, I I, I thought it was kind of you know she's she's the goddess of death, right? And so death isn't also viewed through the same normal living being definition that I think anyone else would apply to it. I mean, look, her her entire army was an army of the dead that she brought back through the eternal flame. So, she, mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, yeah, she's she's. I, I don't she's like not operating in the same realm as anyone that she's engaging with you know like so I, okay I feel interesting like, interesting I don't mean to I'm not justifying her killing but I'm I almost wonder like is killing even the same thing to the goddess of death like how could it mean the same thing to her if if she if in her head death is not as simple as like life and death I feel like that's a dangerous argument mm. <laughs> probably <laughs> You're just so um, Keep enamored in. with Ken, Ken Jen. 
messes um, you up. <laughs> how about that move that she does though with her hair and then like I don't, <gasps> what is going on there? <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, I, it's pretty spectacular. It's like is she a moose? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um so you did mention that she she's her language is, is different than some of the other characters. And I do think in the Thor world, because she and Odin and even Thor and Loki like are supposed to be so old, mm-hmm. I think there is a sense of that talking in a bit more of a Shakespearean way. The first Thor film was directed by Kenneth Branagh and like, and you even actually, yeah. Really? Yes, it was. Wow. Yes. And you. what's actually great is that you can kind of um, see Waititi in this movie poking fun at that a little bit because going back to this idea of storytelling and revising history. So that scene in the beginning when Thor comes back to Asgard and Loki in his Odin disguise has put on the play. Love that The part. tragedy of Loki. And um, that performance is so overly dramatic, the way they're speaking to each other. And um, I, I feel like that's definitely him poking fun at that that aspect of Thor mythology. Hmm. And um, even some of these previous Thor movies that are not that old. But um, but yeah, that's again, that's also an interesting moment because it has that humor, but then it also connects to those themes as well. Um, hella, man. Uh, yeah, she has some humorous moments, too. I mean, I do appreciate when she's taking Scourge into that, the he, Odin's um, treasure vault, and she's just, like, fake and, like, you know, knocking things over, including um, his fake Infinity Gauntlet, which fans had pointed out in previous movies, if Odin has the Infinity Gauntlet in his vault, then, like, they had pointed out these plot holes. And so, you know, in this movie, like, okay, well, let's explain that away. It's fake, um, just like everything else in there. So um, that made me curious about your perspective, Carolyn, too, because this idea of curation of these items and like <laughs> almost like this museum setting. So I didn't know if you had any more to say about that. The one thing, I mean, this is not from a museum perspective. It's just from a person perspective where they get this, um, you know, the fire dude's crown piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's introduced to us as an audience as like the thing that will destroy Asgard. And then they're like, let's go put it in this museum. Like, let's go... <laughs> Um, just place it here. And, you know, I had questions about like the security and, you know, if this is the thing that can destroy all of the things, you know, and hold dear, it's interesting that you'll put it up on a shelf. But I mean, I, I also think that the, you know, having this store of riches that you've stolen from people is so, you know, the, it's so obviously colonial and drawing to mention, um, or drawing to mind like some of the contemporary conversations happening around artifacts and artworks that are housed in a lot of basements of empire. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as you mentioned um, before too, so those dead warriors are literally in the basement um, in a sort of terracotta army looking way. Um, And then you you also touched on this too that almost Sistine Chapel looking um, you know beautiful painting of these heroes 
that then comes crumbling down. And even in the end of the movie, there is a scene when Thor is confronted with his own image, um, his cracked image as it as it had fallen, which I think is very powerful. Which also reminds me of Thor's relationship to his hair. <laughs> so I think it's clear that Thor Thor's hair is a big part of his identity. And we obviously see evidence of that in his resistance to getting his hair cut by Stan Lee. And I love that Stan Lee does the cutting. <laughs> um, so and even in that scene, he he invokes the name of Odin. He says, by Odin's beard, you shall not cut my hair. Right. And so you're seeing how his hair is this is another thing that ties him to his identity. And still at this point, his identity is tied so much to legacy, his father and Asgard. Um, and at this point, right, he his father has died. Asgard is, is changing because Hela is there. Um, he lost his hammer, which is another thing that he has such a deep connection to. And then he loses his hair. So he is really now in a place where um, he's primed to make, within the narrative, to um, have to make some choices and some realizations. And um, to uh, these, these challenges to who he is that he hasn't really experienced before are uh, kind of prompting uh, you know, a catalyst for change in a way. I'll add that I, just, I think it's funny that he, you know, here he is outside of the nine realms under Asgard's rule or whatever. And he's, you know, he's still invoking Odin's name in a moment like that, right? And who's Odin to anyone outside of the realms that they've conquered, right? Right. And so, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, again, I'll, I said it before, but it just—he's it, a narcissist. He, he, his—he can't seem to put aside his godlike identity for a moment to just even like comprehend the the idea that there are universes or worlds that won't look upon mm. him as a god. But even what I find so interesting is that even when he's challenged to like the learning lesson of the whole. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Their learning lesson of the whole um the whole film is basically for him at least is basically like, you know, your power is not associated with these things, your hammer, your hair, it's inside you cuz mm -hmm. you're a god. You know, and I think <laughs> it's so fascinating that he's not really forced to examine his own privilege, you know, what I mean not to ascribe too much meaning to it. But I do think that there really is no um, substantive journey that he makes. Like, mm. I think the big takeaway is like, oh, Asgard is a people. It's not a place. Right. But also by that same measure, he walks away being like, I hold the power in me, mm. which I don't know. I, I, right. I wonder what that. That is like very interesting. Well, and it also, I, so I do believe that he has learned some lessons, and I think that where you see evidence of that is in his conversation with Loki toward the end of the movie, 
when he doesn't let Loki trick him again, because he always lets Loki trick him. And he he realizes what Loki is up to and he bests Loki and he says to him, life is about growth. It's about change. But you seem to want to stay the same. You're this god of mischief, but you could be so much more. So to me, that provides some evidence to, at least in relation to his brother, him being able to say, okay, Loki's problem is that he is so tied to his identity of god of mischief. He can be more than that. And for he himself, he has learned that some change and some growth is necessary. Now that's that, interesting. Yeah, and and that being said, so that's that's my evidence toward him having some change. Um, I agree with you that there's something a little bit inauthentic about, you know, when when Hella when Hella says to him at the end, you know, what were you the god of again? And you know, and Odin's. Um, life force I, I don't know force ghost whatever odin's like <laughs> thing is says to him you know you're not the god of hammers and he's like that's right i'm the god of thunder and so like you were saying carolyn to just go from like oh, okay i don't need a hammer or hair and i don't need my eye but i'm still the god of thunder is, is a little bit um trite um again so I, i'm of two minds about it i'm seeing this evidence of growth i'm also seeing where it's a little bit superficial and to that end it's also interesting to me that Heimdall is the leader at home when Thor is off on Sakaar. And that Heimdall is the one who is leading the refugees into the mountains to try to get them out of Asgard. Heimdall clearly understands that Asgard is a place, sorry, that Asgard is, is a people, not a place before Thor does. True leadership it, within the context that you're presenting, like the, what you've just said about Heimdall. Am I saying his name right? Yeah. Um, you know, he's he becomes then this unsung hero, and he does all of the real labor. And so, I don't mm-hmm. know. I think a part of me is now even less satisfied with Thor's journey in the context of this other person who's doing the real work and mm-hmm. not getting any of the credit. You know, and then he ends up being on the side of the ship, being like, oh, it's a people, not a place, you know? And so I, I, I don't know, I feel like from a, yeah, from that point of view, it's like, well, of course, the person of color who's actually saving folks and putting in the real work, work, they don't get the hero's narrative, you know, and when's the Heimdall movie coming out? <laughs> That's why I raised the point a little bit, because yeah. I, I do think that there's something to that. And then can I just say one thing, if we're thinking about Thor and his like personal growth and, and the validity of his, of that part of his journey and, you know, if he's changed and his interpersonal um, benefits from his whatever time on Sakaar, I mean, then when we're watching Endgame, Infinity War, the Infinity War, or is it in Endgame? I can't keep them straight. Which, yeah, we watch them back to back, so it's hard yeah. for me. But when he ends up, you know, he's like in mourning with his big pot belly, drinking he's himself drunk. silly. Yeah. So where did that growth go? You know, he he just falls back on his laurels. Um, yeah, I also, but. and I, I, for me, I'm not sure exactly where my frustration lie with Thor's story because I appreciate where Thor is at at the end of this movie. All points that are being brought up here completely considered but i still appreciate where he lands um and then narratively this series goes a step 
punishes him even further in Infinity War with the actual loss of his brother and with the loss of the Asgardian people. It almost makes Mm -hmm. the end of this movie feel like it was for naught. And so is my frustration there with the storytelling in those movies. And then, of course, in Endgame as well, like, I, I feel bad for his character who is just, you know, thrown into this depression. But I also feel like, why was he written that way? Like, why couldn't they have picked up some of the threads that were in Ragnarok and, like, some of those better aspects of his character? Why didn't they go in that direction? I don't know. There's one more thing that I will say, though, to this idea of, like, the ending of this film and to, to what extent it's satisfying I do appreciate this idea that in order for the people of Asgard to live and to thrive and to hopefully make a better future, as you were saying before, Carolyn, the modern context needs to go too. Um, because that modern context and what this golden city they were living in, living in is still a product of the horrific history. And so the fact that they do literally destroy Asgard, the physical place, I did think was powerful. That worked for me. I don't know about you guys. Well, I have a question and I'm going to be honest as I ask it. This question is selfishly so that I can introduce some ideas about Hulk. Yes, yes. I I promise we're going to get to Hulk. (laughs) I feel like this question of, you know, what it comes down to is like, can you hold two truths at the same time, right? Like, can you hold that modern context of Asgard are great and everybody's loving life and eating the grapes and wearing gold and looking good while it's also true that the history that got them there is violent and, um, you know, colonialist and awful can you hold those two truths or do you need to just start anew like just tear it all down and start anew and to that end I feel like the person who is grappling with that on such a personal level is Hulk all right let's talk about Hulk (laughs) I know you have a Hulk later no let's I think we're ready (laughs) you have a lot of Hulk feelings and I I want to hear them I love Hulk I love Hulk so much um I think that Hulk is really interesting because I think he also, like, a lot of what we've been talking about with Asgard, this, like, temporal conflict and then also this conflict of the brute, violent way of doing something Mm -hmm. and, like, the enlightened knowing better is happening within Hulk. Yeah. And I just find that fascinating in the context of uh, what we've been talking about. I mean, I think that he's... he's revisionist in terms of his own history like when he's hulk he thor is talking to him i think and he he's like you know trying to get him to remember that he's bruce and all this kind of stuff and hulk says hulk always hulk yeah and so like when he's existing in this state of violence and like the id he doesn't have any memory of it existing in any other way but by that same token when he becomes bruce banner bruce banner is like Forget Hulk. Bruce has seven PhDs. Right, right, And so it leaves me wondering, like, can you hold both of these truths or does, which I think is answered in Hulk's case down the line when we talk about subsequent films. But in the term, in terms of, um, you know, like a country, a nation, a planet's history, I don't think it's as simple or can be wrapped up as easily. But what's interesting too, I don't know what you made of this, but when Banner is 
banner and they're trying to escape Sakaar. He um he gets a little bit angry with Thor and his his green veins start to come out a little bit. And then um so you almost get that's the first time at least in these movies that you have seen a little bit of like that physical part. Like like it almost seems like the line between Hulk and Banner is starting to to blur a little bit. And they consistently refer to themselves as two different people. I love it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and the fact that maybe they're not so different though comes through even the fact that his friendship with Valkyrie is present even while he's he's a Banner. You know. Yeah. Like they both don't even understand why, but you know. Well, to that end, I'd ask like. I might be making too much of Hulk right now, but I would ask, you know, is are Hela and Thor that different? Mm. Right? I mean, I think that there's there are very much two shades of the same sickness, right? Like Hela comes in and she's like, I am owed this ascension to the throne because I am Hela. And and he Thor similarly is very wrapped up in what's owed to him and what he is meant to do because of his lineage. Yeah, and that's why I think encountering her is a bit of a wake-up call for him because she she even says to him, "Oh, I'm sure Odin told you you were worthy." He told the, he told me the same thing. Right? Mm-hmm. So he kind of has to face that. And Loki says that to him at one point too. He says, "Oh, wow. Yeah, so you you get it now like it hurts being lied to." Right? You've been fed this fiction because Loki is unlike Thor and Hela, right? He's not pure blood. Odin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's interesting about his character too. Yeah, the line he says, being told you're one thing and learning it's all a fiction. Mm. And who lives that better than Hulk? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I love how you guys, like, it, you're one camp all about Hulk and one camp all about Kate <laughs> <Kate> Blanchett. <laughs> That's, That's why we find common ground in this film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why this is the one for us. It couldn't have worked out any better. Do but we want to? Can you imagine? Just, I'm sorry. Can we just talk for a second? Like, you know, can you imagine? Similarly to the the moment where Thor has to kind of reconcile with him his own reflection. That's every day for Bruce Banner, right? Like every day he wakes up from this fugue state in his ripped up pants, and like it's. Uh, it's unbelievable to yeah. me that this character exists. And I think it is representative of a larger um, reckoning that is happening for some of the other characters in the film. Fascinating. Could go on about Hulk all day. I love it. Those beads that he wears. <laughs> <laughs> the be- Oh, when he's, when he's Hulk. The champion beads. Yeah. In that <laughs> towel sarong. He's looking so <laughs> chill. I just love it. He's, he's fantastic. In that, in those scenes, do you guys have any other Valkyrie thoughts? Mm. I don't think. I mean, I know that the next one is going to be about her, um, mm-hmm. and so which I'm I'm really looking forward to that. But I I think the the movie didn't do enough with her, right? Like mm-hmm. you get this like kind of little glimpse in the, into this like fascinating um, it, Valkyrie history. You get like Thor fangirling over her Valkyrie's sword or knife or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but was it was it in this film or was it the next one with they that they did that whole uh, they cut the scene where the woman was walking out of her bedroom? That was, was this it, one. I was going to ask you guys if you knew about that. Yeah, I think I saw something something in Autostraddle about that when it when it happened. And I, I went, now I'm thinking about it. Maybe that was what 
sparked me to watch the movie in the yeah. first place. But I mean, but so here, so there, you have this really fascinating character um, who maybe in a lot of ways has as much claim to um, to Asgard and and its history and the and the monarchy or whatever as Thor, and right. and yet you have her identity sort of being chopped at and seen through the lens of Thor and how she's useful to Thor. Mm. Uh, you know, and it, I I don't know, and I don't know it's just framed as though you know she she was grieving the loss of this person and whatever that you never ever get your full bite though. Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, thinking about what we talked about, where we talked about Thor's, how Thor deals with trauma down the line, right? Like Thor's allowed from a narrative standpoint to fatten up, become Mm -hmm. a booze hound and then becomes comic relief. And I think it's interesting that Valkyrie um, it's seen as this loss, right? Like she's she's a Valkyrie. She's not supposed to be yeah. going off to this distant country and trying to just forget the immense trauma that she suffered. No, she needs to come back and be heroic. And ultimately <laughs> Thor is held to the same standard, but I just think it's interesting thinking about both of their journeys in the context of trauma. Mm. Well, and I, the way that you guys are talking about it actually makes me come to a realization about a question that I had because with Thor throughout this movie, you're getting the the loss of his identity markers of the hammer and the hair and what have you. And the whole thing with his name and the naming. And so she too, she has, well, unlike him, right? She has shed this old name and is going by a new one where he's trying so hard to cling on to his old name. But while he... So much of what he needs to go through is learning to sever his ties with Asgard's legacy. There's that scene when he gives her the old uniform. And so for her, it's like, oh, no, you have to remember, you have to go back to this older identity and you have to, like you're saying, Carolyn, relive that trauma Right? Like physically wearing the same thing that is tied to the period of history that you don't want to remember. And I do think the movie, I think it leaves in enough that if you're looking for it, you can clearly see that she had a level of attachment to that woman who died for her that, like, you know, one would read as romantic. Um, but I do think it's it's a loss that the movie chose not to include the scene that firmly established that it was romantic. Um, and, you know, I'm not entirely aware of whatever metatextual reasons for that, but I, I do think it's a loss. She rem- Her character reminds me a little bit of... Um Finn from Star Wars just in that mm. like there's so many instances in not to get go on and talk about Star Wars which is ultimately my <laughs> what we want franchise. to do <laughs> that's um, what I want to do that's what I want to do next so oh well I'm, in. I'm <laughs> so in but you know he you know he's like a clone born of trauma a, a made to fight war and battles and then so there's so many instances where like he has to go back or maybe it's just one but he go goes back and he like puts on the stormtrooper outfit for like hijinks to like get stuff done and i just think that that's such an interesting trope in these sorts of films where it's like you have been in battle you've been subjected to immense physical and emotional trauma here put this back on (laughs) yeah yeah that's a really interesting connection 
I'm going to say one more thing about Kate Blanchett. Not necessarily because I think it needs to be said and or edited, edited in, mm-hmm. but something I think worth putting out there. Her death. Mm. I take issue with it. Slash, I don't believe it. Um, so here is this being that was so powerful that Odin couldn't kill her. The best he could do was figure out how to trap her, right? right? And and then now we have this like fire being with a fire sword, sword, <laughs> Carolyn, that's for you. Um, uh, this fire being with his sword destroying the Asgard and like I guess stabbing her through. I don't. I just I I found that that death was a little too easy for the quote unquote goddess of death. I don't know. I and I granted I don't know the physics of it. The only um. <laughs> thing I have here, and I, I'm not sure this fully answers your question or justifies it, is that they do tell us repeatedly that she draws her power from Asgard. Uh, so right. oh, if, right. if he's bringing, um, bringing on Ragnarok, which I understand to just be the absolute destruction of Asgard, then I think that would have an impact on... That she would become less powerful, I guess. So then, two follow-ups to that. So then you're telling me that Odin was basically like, let me live out this cush life on Asgard with this woman trapped here. And then I'm going to, when I die, I'm going to let her come out, kill y'all. And then you guys are going to have to destroy this your home. I'm going to be out though i'm gonna be good well the other option is like letting her win right i mean like it's not you don't have to pull it to the ground right well i mean outside of the other letting her win i i i would argue that somebody didn't push hard enough to figure out how to stop her in a way that was (laughs) that was more meaningful than i'm gonna trap her in a temporary realm that will immediately unlock the moment i die it just feels very selfish it is interesting I, i don't like odin i think he I think that he is really not, again, not to excuse Hela, but I feel like he created her and all of the problems that come along with her. And he didn't even, like you said, Lexi, so there's this, he didn't really try hard enough, it seems, but he also completely lied to Thor and Loki forever. He just was like, I'm going to die and it's going to be your problem. He didn't even tell them like, oh, by the way, when I die, this is what's going to happen. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they weren't prepared. You know, I can probably keep going on about this, but you, you, you raise a a good point. Like I, there's something interesting. I think one can do from the perspective of Hela in this film. Mm -hmm. So the killing sucked. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not advocating the killing, but (laughs) there, there's just, there's, I feel like there's more to sink your teeth into, like with regard to the relationship between between Hela and, and Odin or like I just there's or there's like just such an interesting backstory there that I feel like if you were to take a character like her and um bring her beyond the film like bring yeah. bring it to the point where you're seeing her interact with somebody outside of her younger brother or whatever you know I, I there might be there's just I feel like the it leaves the room open for a lot more of an interesting dynamics than Thor and everyone else i don't hate thor but i'm really hating on him right now yeah i agree i I don't feel like i hate thor in fact i feel like i am very interested in thor but for some reason in the context of this conversation i keep coming back to the fact that he's you know he's set up as this hero but for me he's almost like comic relief like the the stories that are more interesting to me are not his story um but what you're saying about 
Hela reminds me of Nebula's story, mm. Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. and this sister yes. killing machine who's like built and bred to do it. And at first you're like, so, I don't know, I was always kind of repulsed and freaked out by her. And then you find her backstory. Right. I think something similar could be done with Hela. And uh, similarly, the dynamics between her and her father were fascinating. Yeah. It, it just, it wasn't the, just the traditional good, bad, whatever. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of gray area to work with. And so, yeah, no, I mean, and, you know, Kate Blanchett would be the person executing it, so it'd be great. So, <laughs> You guys, do you like that I brought up, I'm bringing up so many other Marvel references. Am I a fan of the MCU? Yeah. So do you guys have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Always Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Hulk is always Hulk. Hulk is always Hulk. No banner, just Hulk. We're not worthy of Kate. <laughs> so thank you guys for being thanks, with me Tara. today this was super fun yeah thanks for having us learned a lot and um maybe we'll see you again in season two in the fall yeah when they finally make the hulk specific film you can call me back <laughs> and the hella spinoff <laughs> yeah spin-off. <laughs> all right thanks guys <laughs> If you liked this conversation about Thor Ragnarok and you would like to hear more, you can follow me at anidea underscore podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Artwork was designed by Brooke Pender, who you can follow on Instagram at bpenderillustrations. Music by Demeter Salvia. You can check out their debut EP, etc. Volume 1 on Bandcamp. Thank you for listening and join me next time for I Must Write These Wrongs, an analysis of Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs>